So welcome to another edition of Amana Podcast. Amana is a collective of people, places, things, and actions that transcend us and exploring your higher virtues. And today it gives me great pleasure to introduce my high school buddy, uh, Paul Baxter. Say good day, Paul. Good day, Mark. Good to be here. Thanks for thanks for doing this with me. You're you're in Singapore. I'm in Ojai, California, and uh, but we started started at least from the high school perspective in in the same high school. So we've known each other. We're getting <laughs> we're starting you know <laughs> mid age, I guess, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so part of the discussion of, of virtues, you've had a really interesting career and. Uh, and and life, I would consider you someone that I connected to. Well, actually, I'll, I'll say this backwards. So we met in grade seven, mm-hmm. um, which would have made us around, I don't know what, 13, something like yeah. that in Australia. Yeah. 13, um, yeah. And as I think back on it, you're probably the only guy I couldn't figure out <laughs> in high school. still can't. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, you know, you're a surfer back then, and 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 long hair, and and the Doors shirt, and uh, yeah. I remember those days greatly. And and as as we kind of emerged from high school, I think uh, had a deeper bond in in friendship. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been a, a, a wonderful connection, and I I love you as a dear friend. So where I'd like to kick off is kind of give us your perspective, Paul, on where where we grew up. And mm. and kind of the the things that you cared about at that time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a great place to start. Um, I think we were really fortunate, Mark, to, to grow up where we did. Um, you know, we grew up in the southern outskirts of, of Sydney. Um, it had a real small town vibe to it, um, mm. although it was only you know it was less than less than an hour and a half at that time. It's probably quicker now with. Uh, the roads and everything, but back then maybe an hour, hour and a half to get into the, the city, but it still felt like a small town. Mm. Um, it was working class for sure, um, but we had those foreshore areas around around the beach and the bays that were, were fairly wealthy. So, you know, we were exposed to all walks of life. We went to school with with people who were, were truly, you know, sort of really working class and others that were, you know, upper middle class. So we, we learned to deal with you know, every, every kind of, um, you know, sort of family situation, personality and so on. Mm. We, we were, you know, we, our, our means were humble enough that we knew the value of, of hard work and the value of, of things, um, but we weren't, you know, we weren't so hard up that it was a struggle, right? So I think that was really fortunate. And in terms of lifestyle, you know, as you said, we had the beaches, we always surfing, we weren't surfing we were spearfishing or or something like that right so really active a lot of fun um just great great people really honest working class uh people by and large and so after after high school you you jumped into the real estate game tell us what what led you there and and uh some of your thoughts or, or experiences of what happened at that at that juncture one thing that you may still not know, and, and a lot of people I went to school with wouldn't have known, is that I actually started in real estate well before I left high school. Yeah, I, um, I was one of those rare individuals that at a young age, sort of 15, um, 14, 15, had a, a clear view of what I wanted to do uh, mm-hmm. with my career. Um, oddly enough, that was real estate. Um, and I just sort of arrived at that decision because I, I knew I, I didn't want to, um, you know, I didn't want to work in a, in a manual labour job, but I didn't want to be inside all the time either. So I thought, well, real estate's a, a, a business-related job that I can still be out, out and about each day going, you know, out in the car, going to houses, things like that. I, and I, I liked architecture, I liked houses. So then my sort of simple, you know, adolescent thinking was like, well, that's a business job. Um, white collar job that still gets me out of the office. So it was pretty much as simple as that. Um, and I just went down to a local real estate agency in Cronulla, mm-hmm. nearby where we lived, and just said, "Hey guys, can I um, can I volunteer my services 
you know, in the evenings or on the weekends, just so I can get a feel for the industry. And, and they, you know, probably wouldn't happen these days, but they said, sure, just, you know, put on a suit, come down on Wednesday night to the auction house and you can help us with the auctions. So I started going to auctions at sort of 15 years old, wearing a, a cheap suit that my dad bought me. Right? <laughs> I've still got pictures of a dreadful looking suit. Um, and, you know, I just walk around spotting buyers and, and sort of helping the auctioneer to identify who was bidding and so on. And they started bringing me in on weekends to go put the for sale signs up and the salt stickers on it. And they gradually gave me more and more stuff to do. I started writing the ads for some of the, the properties and opening houses for inspections. I was sort of 15, 16. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that, that was my entree into real estate even before I graduated from, from school. Yeah, I didn't know that at all. It's, that's very cool. And what, what led you into, was there, a, if you had a clear path or a clear vision, was there a turning point where, you, where that happened, I would imagine? Um, yeah, I think I think the turning point was um, probably when you know I used to my, my parents divorced around that time just before that time, um, and I remember thinking, you know, my my dad has always been in, has been continuously employed um, and has a respectable job, you know, working as a paramedic, you know, respected in the community and all of that, but. Really, my parents always struggled to make ends meet, right, on a, on a paramedic's salary. So, you know, my my mum had jobs, my my dad had a second job and a third job sometimes, and all of that stuff. And I just thought to myself, yeah, that's not that's not how I want to live. Mm. Um, I'm going to need to to aspire to something more. And I knew that you know, a, a career in business would would provide more than that. And as I said before. Being stuck in an office all day didn't appeal, so I zeroed in on real estate. Um, and uh, you know, I've always been the kind of person that when I identified something, I went after it pretty doggedly, right? So mm-hmm. I wasn't going to wait until I graduated high school and graduated college. I just said, I'm going to go get some experience. Um, went knocking on on doors, and the first one I knocked on, they, they said, sure, come on in. So, <laughs> um, in fact... In fact, they offered me a job when I graduated high school. Uh, I ended up taking a, a job with a different company that was a bit bigger than, than that one. And um, you remember that that job I had, Mark? Yeah, in, first G- job. in Ginelli, right? In Ginelli, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and commenced my apprenticeship in real estate. Went to college in the evenings uh, to get my license and worked in the in the daytime, and just really had a blast. Of, um, Working in, in real estate as a as an entry level guy in property management is something I would recommend to anyone if they want to learn how to deal with conflict, how to deal with, <laughs> with all sorts of crisis, yes. uh, you know, how to how to negotiate, um, you know, all, all of those basic skills, attention to detail, all those things you just get thrown right in the deep end. So um, I learned a lot in three years. Um, I'd always intended to go to university. Yes. Um, but I wasn't. I wasn't ready to when when I left school. I just needed. I just wanted some time, you know, to to do other things and to earn some money and get some experience. So three years down the track, I thought, well, I best. I better go get that degree um, yeah. before I, you know, before things get too far down the track. So I went. I went and got um, my my land economics degree at, at university. Um, and as you know, uh, during that period of time, commenced working. Downtown at a you know at a multinational corporate real estate organization, and and that's sort of what sort of catapulted me into the corporate world, and led led to me traveling and, and working overseas all these years, and, and sort of the 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 serendipitous sort of way I fell into a, a big business career. But what what I what I appreciate about your, your journey is that you've been very conscientious about when you've taken the step, right? Like you've mm. you've thought these things through. It's not on a whim. Um, and I do recall even when you were with that multinational company that you uh, took a step back or a step to the mm. side, if you will, and went into entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and um, so that, that took obviously an element of risk. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I think that was a really, I, I call that my MBA. Yeah. Right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people were asking for MBAs at that time. Um, and in terms of taking a, a next career step, an MBA seemed like um, at that time a prerequisite. Um, yes. Yes. The popularity of MBAs with employers sort of ebbs and flows a bit, but at that time it was big. Um, so that was sort of on the back of my mind. Maybe I should do that. Um, although I was getting offered really good opportunities with the company I was working for. I was, I was in my mid twenties and I was already a, a director um, and running a, a business unit, which was unusual for that age. So yeah. I was on, it's on the right track. So it was a bit of a surprise when I, I resigned and, and told my boss I was going to start a company. Um, and basically, I, you know, I earned a, a, what I thought at that time was a pretty big bonus that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, now, now whenever is the time to go and do, um, you know, do my own MBA as an entrepreneur, learn, learn those business management skills on my own two feet, um, live and die by my own, my own decisions. Um, and so I took the I took the plunge and, and started a business. Um, I only ran the business for for three years. Um, nice. I, I pretty quickly realised that a I can do it. Um, b I chose the the wrong industry to do it in. Right? <laughs> so um, you know, I, was, I went into the construction industry. Um, we were very successful very quickly. The, the business is still very successful under the current owners, um, but I, I I really didn't want to be. Um, hands-on in the construction industry um, for the rest of my life. Um, it just wasn't the sort of environment I wanted my my son potentially to follow me into. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can imagine, as sort of all around the world, pretty rough and tumble, and at times just flat-out corrupt. Yes. So I wanted out of that. I was fortunate enough that one of the suppliers that we use wanted to buy into the business, so I ended up buying the business. And it, it continues to thrive today, and I'm... Still, That's great. Uh, still in contact with those guys. So that was that that actually enabled me to come back into the corporate world at a higher level. Um, I actually went back to the company I was working for previously with a bigger job, um, you know, more responsibility and all of those things. So uh, it certainly wasn't time wasted, but uh, it toughened me up a lot, which I think was important. It gave me a harder edge. Um, that entrepreneur, the, the entrepreneur mm-hmm. approach, you know, starting any business or idea is you, you're doing it all, you know, yeah. you're in a corporate structure, you're, you're more in an expertise, you know, and, mm-hmm. and obviously corporate culture. So it's really, I, I love that approach to the MBA. I always liked Kerry Packer's response to his son when his son asked him, you know, should I go to college, dad? And he said, what do you want to learn to smoke marijuana, uh, get out in the <laughs> yeah. bush and, and learn about life, right? Well, the, the biggest thing that I took away from that experience, I think, looking back, is um, just just how hard it is to, you know, deliver profit from, from revenue um, yeah. and, you know, to, to go out, rustle up revenue and then run a business and deliver a profit at the end of the day. Um, and uh, coming back into the corporate world, I think it always stuck with me that I, as I run businesses, I, I treat every dollar as if it was my own. Yeah. Um, and I instill that in the people that I put under me to run departments and things that, you know, you've got to, you've got to think about this decision. If this was your money, would you do this? Absolutely. And often it often recolors the, the lens that you're looking through on these decisions, right? If, if it was coming out of your bank account, would you hire that person or would you make that decision? Um, so that's that's been very valuable uh, perspective for me. I think uh, that's that's a great value. I like that a lot. I, I, I mean, I I look at it the same way. To be honest with you, I mean, I have to being the work that I've done. But you know, when I'm consulting with people, I I encourage that value deeply because mm. you know it's uh, it's not what not you know. Um, and then at some juncture, Paul, you you made your way to Asia. Kind of share us, share with us a little bit about how that came about, and you, you had learned Japanese, if I recall. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, when you were younger. So you know, like like the idea of an MBA. One of the the, um, the things I wanted to do in my life was to go and live. Um, somewhere outside of my comfort zone, 
um, it was just one of those items I wanted to tick off my my life list, I guess. Um, I had a, a strong feeling that I, I didn't want to you know, sort of walk into the same pub um, <laughs> that I'd been going to when I was 18 um when i was when i was 44 and 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 tell the same stories and listen to the same jokes um i wanted to i wanted to see the world and, and get that experience and i'd had a couple of uncles who were very successful in business um who had both spent time overseas and so that was attractive to me um i had been studying japanese you're right um more more out of a personal interest and as a as a hobby um it ended up serving me well um the company i was working for gave me the opportunity to to move to singapore um and take over an underperforming business uh in singapore and in fact i the the day i arrived in singapore with my family in tow was the first time i'd ever been to singapore it's not like i flew out there and had a look and said yeah this is for me i just literally said i'll take the job got on got on a plane and arrived in singapore that's great No, no no scouting trip huh no, no scouting trip. No, just straight into it. Um, and, um, you know, it was a great place to start. Singapore is Asia light, as they say. It's a pretty, pretty easy place to live. Um, so the business was, was really small, really underperforming, and I felt like I could turn it around um, using the principles I'd, I'd implemented elsewhere in, in businesses in Australia and also in my own business as an entrepreneur. And then the financial crisis struck. Mm. Right. And within months of arrival in Singapore, you know, the world started to literally fall apart around me. So, and that was a, a real trial by fire, right? Um, a young, newly, newly minted uh, MD of a business in a foreign country um, mm. trying to turn a business around as the world is on fire. So, uh, you know, really, really tough. Um, but we succeeded and I, I learned a heck of a lot. Um and, and earned the opportunity um, to take on a bigger business in a bigger country. Uh, it was picked up by a competitor, um, sort of headhunted, if you like, yep. to, to go to Japan and take over what was really a, a pretty big business um, compared to what I had been ex- exposed to before. Yeah. Um, and those those Japanese skills fell neatly in, into place, right? So, yeah, that's 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 really neat. And so, and and then. So how long did you spend in, in Japan at that, at that point? Yeah, we, we were in Japan uh, for five years. Five years. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And the, the company that I was working for had just purchased um, a business in Japan. Um, and that was, part of, that was part of their growth strategy. And they, they were trying to integrate this newly purchased business into their platform. So you had this really very... A very large domestic real estate services firm in Japan that was um, sort of being shoehorned into this multinational American corporate structure. So it was a real, a real clash of cultures. Um, you know, yes. integrating, yeah, integrating acquired businesses is difficult at the best of times, right? But when you had a very, very old school domestic Japanese business and a, a very um, innovative, fast-paced American corporation trying to bring those two things together was, was pretty interesting. Uh, in fact, I was the first um, foreign employee to enter the to enter that domestic business as a, a leader. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the American firm I was working for had a separate business that they'd been running for about 10 years in Japan that operated completely independently at that time. They were downtown in a in a in a really nice A-grade office in the middle of the financial district. I was on the outskirts of town in a suburban office building, seven, seven floors of Japanese salarymen who were smoking at their desks, oh my God. right? And, uh, you know, worn out grey carpet, grey walls, um, you know, boxes and boxes of hard copy folders and files everywhere, fax machines all over the place, cigarette smoke, um, not a word of English, no. uh, all, all all of the desks arrayed like a classroom, traditional Japanese style, with with my desk at the front and everyone else looking at me like I was a school teacher. <laughs> um, so pretty interesting. Like yeah, again, just sort of into the deep end of a new culture. Um, Did you feel foreign I, at the time? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
yeah, they 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 went out of their way to make me feel foreign too. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I, what what uh, my boss hadn't told me is that they hadn't yet dealt with the incumbent leader who was running that business. They mm. they hadn't told that individual that he was no longer going to be running the business. Uh, so when I arrived, he was there running the business, and I arrived, and they said, "Oh, just um, let's just tell him that you're here to to help him," and you know we'll. We'll work out the details later. So um, that was tricky. And, in fact, that that particular guy and, and I are still friends uh, to this day. We're still in touch. He's a great guy. But he was he was sort of shifted sideways. And so I was the centre of a political turmoil. Um, people thought that this guy had been treated badly and, you know, they, they saw me as a big part of that problem. So I had a lot of... You know, a lot of ground to make up in terms of winning hearts and minds, and not looking like the assassin from from America, as they thought, right? Yes, <laughs> it's interesting. When I went to uh, business school in Germany, one of our biggest case studies that would come up over and over again—I think we we flogged it to death—which mm. was Chrysler, Daimler, and, and Mercedes merging. You know, and so Mercedes yeah. with all this tradition and yeah. the tinkering of the Germans that has such. Uh, you know, engineering craft that goes with it and, and, you know, efficiency, but really about quality and, you know, Chrysler just wanting to speed up the whole engine and it just fell to bits. Um, so you've, you've lived, you've lived that version of it in, in Japan. And I am curious because you have really traveled all over Asia uh, mm. and, and seen so much of it. So I'm, I'm, I know there's so many, cultures within Asia and then obviously subcultures uh, as we keep breaking it down, just like there is anywhere. But um, coming from Australia and emerging yourself into the Asian world, tell us a little bit about that and kind of what you've learned and the values that you've established um, living in Asia. Mm. Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've done business. I've managed managed people and businesses all over Asia um, from Kazakhstan and Pakistan to Myanmar and Korea, Japan, all over India, all over China, um, the Philippines, you know, you name it. Uh, if, if there's a city uh, in, in, I've been there, right? So um, pretty, uh, pretty difficult to make that transition from Australia because in Australia you know, I had a national role, so I was dealing with teams all over the country. And an Australian coming into Asia tends to make the mistake of uh, of looking at Asia as analogous to the states of Australia, right? So you're you're, you're the regional guy based in based in Hong Kong or Singapore, and all, these are all the states that you're managing, right? But in fact, um, completely different cultures and ways of seeing the world and the, the, the context with which they look at a situation is so different than, than ours. So therefore they, they make different conclusions from the same data. Um, yes. uh, the, the speed, uh, the complexity, the everything from tax rules, current currencies, even systems of measurement. I mean, we use square feet or square meters to measure office space in, in Korea. They use uh, ping, in Japan, they use Subo, you know, so all these mm. sort of things. It's a massive learning curve, right? Um, yeah. But the, the hardest thing of all is figuring out how to motivate individuals because all these other things are incidental if you can't motivate the individuals and have an engaged workforce who are behind the plan and, and sort of bought into the vision. Mm. Um, mm. And if you use the same approach for everybody, then it's not going to work because what motivates um, an individual in all of these places is essentially the same, but the way to unlock that motivation, the, the road to, to unlocking it is completely different. And you've got, to, you've got to figure that out. Can you give us a couple of examples of that? Yep. Yep. Um, let's, let's look at um, Japan and Korea, uh, Japan and, and China, right? Um, a lot of people might think they're, they're similar um, in many ways uh, from the outside perspective. We should give but a little shout out to Happy New Year, Happy Chinese New Year. Yeah, Gang Hefa Choi to our, our Chinese friends. Yeah. Um, 
happy, happy Chinese New Year. Um, yeah, so a, a Japanese employee really values community um, and, and values um, the hierarchy around them, right? So they, they go off to work every day to please their superiors mm-hmm. and to help their, their juniors, right? That's their motivation. They don't go to work every day thinking, how do I maximize my bonus? Mm. Um, how, how do I smash my sales target? Um, how do I help make the company profitable? They go to work thinking I, I need to show my my senpai, my 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 senior, mm. um, that uh, that I'm a hardworking employee, and I'm you know I'm here to support the company and and to support him, and and they really value sweat, right? Mm-hmm. So they won't leave the office until the boss makes a move to leave, even if they've got nothing to do. They'll sit there and find ways to be busy um so to sit in front of an individual like that and say look i've got a new bonus scheme for you that can see you make 50 percent more money if you achieve these goals it bounces off yeah right because that it doesn't matter how much sense it makes unless it contributes to their sense of community and to their sense of supporting their juniors and their seniors they're not interested mm. right and so we can go into these conversations thinking that that's the way to motivate people. That's the traditional sort of Western approach is people are motivated by financial reward and, um, you know, you've got the carrot and the stick approach. Uh, you've got to focus a lot more on, on unlocking the hearts uh, of the Japanese employee before you can have that conversation, whereas in China they're far more pragmatic. Just before you go on to China, so I have a couple of questions here. Um First of all, uh, you're a great study of business and business leaders and what's come before us. Did, did, did you come across Deming and his impact that he had in Japan? He was a kind of a business philosopher. Just curious. No, I, I haven't seen his work. Okay. So he was, he was he's someone that he took his philosophy of business. America wouldn't buy it and went to Japan and, and kind of the the Deming Award was the greatest business award you could be handed in Japan. That's my understanding of it. Okay, he's written really thick books that may be of interest to you. And um, right. then my other understanding in Japan, and I don't know this to be true, so I'm really curious to to hear it from you. Is my understanding is that when you get into a business, rather than just going up the chain that you would go into each part of the business unit. So I may start in marketing, I may go into finance, I may go into, um, I don't know, reporting or analytics. Like, do you, is that is that true? I'm breaking a myth buster here, I guess, if it's no, not. I no, know, I, know, I know what you're alluding to. Um, so the, f- the first thing you need to understand about Japanese corporation, that it is slowly changing, but they're, they're not necessarily built with the sole intention of, of maximizing return to shareholders, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're gen- they generally go into these enterprises with a view to creating a great product or a great service and s- supporting um, employees to, to have lo- lifelong safe careers where they can earn a decent income, right? So they're, they're looking at what comes out on the bottom line is sort of one of the, the, the considerations way down the bottom of the page. Um, so that, there's that context to begin with. And so, secondly, um, the nature of Japanese culture is that um, although there is ostensibly a, a hierarchy in Japanese culture, um, decisions in corporations tend to be made in a collegiate manner hmm. because no, nobody wants to be the person who said, okay, we're going left, not right. They, hmm. they, gotcha. they find uh, much more comfort in, you know, numbers if you like so you know everyone agrees so we're going to do it it's not his it's not sato-san's fault because he wasn't the guy that said right. we all we all agreed so if it goes wrong we're all like they can't we're fire all in the bin. They, they can't <laughs> fire all of us right so so they spend a lot of time aligning around around decisions before a decision is made right so mm. meet, meetings cor- corporate meetings in japan are not for robust discussion and decision making Meetings in Japan are for the ratification of a of an already made decision. Gotcha. So you spend a lot of time. Like if 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 a group of executives want to drive 
a new direction on a particular issue, they will say, right, um, you go and meet with that that little faction over there and have, take them out for drinks and persuade them to our way of thinking. I'll take this faction out and persuade them. You take that faction out and persuade them. So you split up and, and you, go, you just go drinking. Yeah, right. You go, you go to uh, a local izakaya and you sit down and you, you drink beer and, and, and eat snacks and persuade them to get on board. And once, once you feel like you've persuaded everybody and they're all aligned, you go into a meeting and you say, we need to make a decision on this particular item. What do you say over there? And they say, oh, well, we agree. And you go around the room and everyone agrees and then you go ahead and do it, right? So very, very know. interesting. I have, I have, uh, I'll give a little shout out here to Natsumi, who's my current intern uh, for Mana Group, and she's getting her MBA over here. And and through this internship already, she's already looked at and goes, I want to change my my MBA. So she's leaving the school that she's in. She's gone mm. back to Japan. She's right now. She's in quarantine, so she'll be listening yeah. to this later, and uh, and she's going to come back to UCLA and learn more about communications because you know I think the social media world is starting to be so dominant of how people get their information that uh, she's she's seeing the future through some of this. So, um, yeah. so please jump into to China and some of the differences that you experienced in China or anywhere else on the map. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one real life example of um, how hard it can be to get that sort of alignment around decisions yes. um, in Japan, and then I'll then I'll segue that into the the China analogy just to sort of highlight the the cultural difference of of these two big markets, right? So, um, when I took over the business uh, in Japan. It was really, really clear to me that the the process we were using to, to manage workflow in one of the departments was really antiquated and inefficient, and it was really holding us back and and costing us a lot a, a lot more money than it needed to. Um, so I went to the guy that was sort of GM of that department and said, "Look, I, I think this process and this the, the the technology underpinning this process is." just really inefficient and out of date. And if we were to introduce a modern system, we could probably, you know, reduce the time it takes to run this particular workflow by at least 20%. Um, bottom line impact would be huge. And he agreed immediately. He said, yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've, I've looked at that many times and I agree. And I said, well, what do you think we should do about it? He said, well, we can't do anything about it until he gave me the name of the individual Let's use, let's use Sato again, poor Sato. Let's say, let's say it was Sato. Um, Sato-san um, invented that process and he still works here. He's in a different department now, but he's still a senior guy. He's still on the, you know, the ex-co. Ex and if we change the system now, he'll be really embarrassed. Yes. Right? Yes. So we need to wait. He's going to retire in about three years. So we're just going to wait. Until he retires, then we're going to implement a new system. Yeah, right. Right? Um, and that, is that, that, is was, that around shame or pride and things like that, Paul? Yeah, it's just protecting. You know, I told you about protecting your seniors and helping yes. your juniors. And, he, yeah. you know, everyone was just protecting him because it was more important to protect his emotions than it was to increase the profitability of the business. Yeah, gotcha. In their, in their, in their context, right? And it yes. truly, to them, it truly was. Um, it didn't. You know, didn't occur to them that that was they were now owned by a uh, a listed company right. um, out of the states, and that you know we had a <laughs> a new imperative, and yes. that, that changed over time. But uh, that that's a great example mm. of you know how a different way of thinking about the world, a different context of looking at things, you know, leads people to an entirely different conclusion than you and I might meet. You know, looking at the same data, right? Yeah. Uh, so it took me it took me time to get my head around that and and then understand how to drive change in a in that context um, and it can be done just takes a bit more time and a bit more work and we we drove a lot of change and we turned that business around um, but in, in going to China um, yeah they're, they're supremely pragmatic as a people and they they tend to find the the most direct path from A to B on any given subject. And they're also very commercial, right? So yes. 
the exact same situation unfolding in China would probably be met with, well, you're the boss, so if you want to change it, let's change it. Just let us know what it's going to be, and we'll we'll make it happen. Um, because they're they're accustomed to, you know, the supreme leader, if you like, of the group making the decisions. Yes, gotcha. So, um, ironically, in a, a socialist environment, there's a lot more efficiency than there is in the democratic environment of Japan. Interesting. Because in fact, you know, in practice, the Japanese. Are, in the way they go about things, are still clinging to these socialist ideas of the group, whereas in China, you know, under what uh, on the outside from the outside looks like an even more socialist way of doing things is actually supremely pragmatic um, yes. and, and extremely commercial. Uh, the individual is is driven by um, you know commercial success, um, so you can motivate a Chinese executive much more easily through the opportunity for, you know, monetary reward. And they're quite happy to, to change direction rapidly on the say-so of the new boss. Gotcha. Yeah, very interesting. And, and now you're back in Singapore and you've just taken on a, a new role. Um, so you're in some, I guess, new, new Greenland, you know, to, to be discovered, that is. Um, <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your journey there and what, what you're looking at into uh, some of the values or guiding principles that you've established inside yourself that will help you do you know make decision-making and things like that in, in this new role. Oh, yeah. Um, so what, what I learned uh, running businesses all over Asia is that, you know, notwithstanding the pathway to unlocking um, engagement and motivation, which is the key to, to growing any business, is unlocking true engagement of your employees, right? Yes. Um, having, having them as excited about the vision of the future as you are and, you know, ena enabling an environment where these people want to do the things that need to be done um, rather than an environment where people are, are doing the things that need to be done because they're, they're afraid of the consequences, right? So my, you know, my principles in Japan were, well, everyone, wants success but for different reasons right mm -hmm. so um i needed to unlock the hearts and minds of the japanese employee by you know a, a vision of community success of the community and mm -hmm. building something that they could all be proud of helping the business uh, as a community whereas in some other um, jurisdictions it was more about if you help me build a more efficient community you'll be rewarded financially so there it was different um Un different ways of unlocking the same thing, which is the motivation to, to do what needs to be done to build the company, right? So um, I had the opportunity last year to sort of take a sideways step out of a, a, a very large multinational corporate environment yep. and step into a, a much younger business, still in a related field. I mean, the, the business I'm in now um, is the the design and construction of, of commercial environments, um, which was something I did in my previous firm, but now it's the exclusive focus in, in the firm I'm now running. Yes. Um, and I really liked the idea of building uh, teams from the ground up. We're still in a fairly nascent business. We've got um, a decent-sized team in Singapore, um, India and Hong Kong, and everywhere else is still pretty small. So it's the opportunity for me to to apply all the things I've learned over the last 20 years to what is essentially, um, you know, at least in Asia, a, a startup business. Um, so it's really, it's really exciting. It's, it's much more dynamic. I mean, in a big multinational corporation, a lot of the decisions you're making are fine-tuning decisions. They're decisions about improving efficiency by degrees. Um, what we're doing here is making step changes every every week and every month that accelerate the business from small to medium and medium to large and large to, you know, that's a, it's, it's a whole different journey. Well, also you're dealing with, hopefully I get this term right, because you're, you're the English major between the two of us, that's for sure, um, the ergonomics of it all, right? So you're, you're not just 
um, building teams, but you're the way that you build teams, the way that the companies kind of operate. Do you are you excited to dive back into that space? If that's if that's part of your role, I'm not sure. Yeah, the built the built environment um, is kind of what led me initially here. Right, I, as I said, I didn't want to work in an office all the time, um, oh. although I although I do now, yeah. um, <laughs> and I was interested in architecture. Um, and you know the the way the built environment interplays with with corporate culture, corporate processes, um, engagement, wellness, all of those things is really fascinating to me, um, and and that's entirely what what we're focused on in this business is how how do corporations uh, construct better built environments that that better drive business performance, you know. Uh, the old way of thinking of sort of how do we put as many people as possible into a space um, and, and give them tasks to do and, and, you know, drive return for the company that everyone knows that thinking is outdated, but not everyone knows how to, how to do it differently. Where the updates uh, so, are. Yeah. <laughs> All the yeah. future lives. So, yeah. So the pandemic has been interesting, right? Uh, there's been two basic responses to, if you want to sort of categorize uh, organizational responses to COVID. Some organisations have said, okay, uh, we're afraid um, of COVID, so we're going to ask our people to go home and work in their home offices. Mm-hmm. Um, other corporations have said, okay, if, if we allow our people to work at home all of the time, we start to lose control of culture. Mm-hmm. We start to lose opportunity for innovation. Um, we start to lose the opportunity to, uh, to train our employees and in the right way of doing things, we're not going to we're not going to take that risk. We're going to readjust the workplace to make it safe in this new reality. So, some of the big tech companies, for example, rather than sending half their workforce home, are leasing more space and creating an, an office environment where people are more spaced out and therefore are not you know, sort of interacting in such a close way. Others are, are building hubs. Um, so they'll have hubs and spokes rather than one big head office. Um, so that that to me is really fascinating. I, I think truly the next, yeah, the next um, sort of three to five years, we're going to see some real innovation in the way companies approach the built environment. Yeah, um, I think the more intelligent companies will find ways for you know their organisational communities to gather um, in the office. Working from home will be uh, a bigger feature of corporate life going forward, but I don't think any companies will entertain large-scale work-from-home programs um, in, in the way that some commentators suspect they might because it just it's just way too hard to, to innovate yeah. when your colleague is in his living room working from the dining room table um, as opposed to standing around the water cooler you know, chatting about a problem and, and finding a solution together. I certainly relate to that in terms of, uh, you know, my background of tennis. So it's like watching tennis on television or being at the live match, you know, mm. it's the, the energy is entirely different. You see a totally different yeah. viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, it's a, just a whole different look at it and that, that you could never get off television, but maybe there's things on TV that I could pause and, Reframe or, or something. Well, a lot like of the, the narrative around a shift towards work from home um, is driven by people my age or older that see that as a real benefit. Um, yes, be, because they already understand their the, the way they need to operate to get things done. Yes, they already know they, their internal networks within the company are well established. Um, there's high levels of trust between themselves and their colleagues. Um, the corporate culture and the way things are done um, within that firm is embedded. It's in muscle memory. Um, so coming to the office to them is not as as important as it might be to a new graduate who still needs to learn, you know, how are things done at this company? How do, how do I fit into the corporate culture? What is the corporate culture? Um, you know, how do I build a, a network of trusted friendships within the company that help me to get things done efficiently? Mm-hmm. Um you know, how do I learn basic skills about how to do my job? Uh, and also, I've been at university for the last three or four years. 
waiting to put on a suit and go in, go downtown, work in an office and go drink cocktails with other young people at the end of the day. They want those things. So, um, you know, I, I think the if, if you were to tap into the voice of the of the younger generation, the people who will actually build companies for the next 20 years, um, that's a very different voice. I think yeah. they want to be, they want to be in the workplace and they need to be in, in, in the workplace. Um, so it's an exciting time for those of us who are designing and building the environment because it's going to look and feel very different. It's going to be a lot more exciting than it has been. Um, yeah. So some, some really interesting outcomes around the corner, I think. Yeah, some real new dynamics, that's for sure, you know, with, with the, the cultural shift for the whole world uh, yeah. in, a, in a whole new way. So there's excitement and there's probably dead wood to to leave behind too. So mm. we'll see mm, what sure. it, which does create what you're saying, the creative environment. We're coming up on time here, um, Paul. So I just uh, would like to ask, you know, any lasting comments you would like to communicate with our listeners? Um. What I'd, I'd like to touch on, Mark, is some of the work that you and I have done together yeah. over the years. Um, yep. I think it's not to be underestimated that, you know, plotting my way through leadership roles um, and, and trying to, to learn, there's very, there's very few formal training programs um, in, in real life as you start to emerge from a, a technician's role to a leader's role. Yes. And we, most of the time we need to put this stuff together ourselves, right? Um, yep. And the technical skills are easy enough to pick up, but understanding yourself and what you need to work on on the inside to to unlock leadership is, is really complicated and difficult. Um, I had some real blockers that I had to deal with that I didn't even see until you and I did some work together mm-hmm. um, where you were able to make sort of force me to step back and ask some some pretty difficult questions of myself, um, you know, what, not the least of which was, you know, what do, what do you really want uh, from your career? If you don't, if you don't know that, you know, you don't, you've got no roadmap, you're not going to get anywhere. <laughs> so that was, that was truly, today. what's my North star. Yep. Um, and, you know, understanding what truly understanding my weaknesses. Um, I think I had a superficial view of that. Um, and a great example, Mark is, as you know, um, I've always been in, in roles where I've been a, a public speaker um, mm-hmm. back in high school, yep. um, whether it was <laughs> as a, a student leader or uh, on a committee or whatever, Toastmasters, always been a speaker. And, you know, oftentimes people go into real estate because their friends and family tell you, you're a good talker, you should go into real estate. <laughs> right? <laughs> I've had some unsolicited advice about that more recently <laughs> yeah uh, but what they should be saying is um if you were if you could become a really good listener you should go into real estate no. um yes. <laughs> and what, what i what i realized is that my my talent for speaking was preventing me from looking at my inability to communicate effectively hmm. um you know being articulate as a speaker is not the same as communicating effectively and i, I and i i got you know well past halfway through my career without understanding, without really knowing that. Um, mm. So that was a big aha moment that you you were able to unlock with me. So I'm deeply grateful for that because it really it really was a turning point for me to understand the difference between speaking and communicating, um, truly listening, um, and, and then being able to deliver the message effectively rather than just talk, right? So um, a huge thanks to you because that was no small thing in terms of developing my career from you know, where it was at that time to where it is now. No, I really appreciate that. Though. I mean, the way, you know, the root word, as you're very good at this, um, of communication is to commune, right? Yeah. To come, to, come, to come together as one. So the communication often talking is, is sometimes the least of that. You yeah. Know, it's... it's um, I forget what the percentages are. I've certainly read them before, but I don't care about reading. I care about how how it gets there, like you're talking about in each culture, because there's a different way of communing, and then with each exactly. individual. Yeah. So we're yeah. The, the bottom line. Uh, I think our value systems drive how we communicate, and mm. you know, it doesn't really matter at that point what culture you come from. 
your your household really is going to depend on that. And yeah, uh, so it gets yeah. back to that individual. Well, you know, we didn't we didn't really have an opportunity. Um, time time certainly got away from us, Mark. But um, you know, understanding how a value system underpins the decisions you make in corporate life was another aspect of the work you and I did together. Yes. Um, and sort of crystallizing, you know, what is your your value system? And um, I know you're up against time, but um, just to touch quickly on that, you know, I think we all we all search for meaning in the in the work we do. Mm. Um, and I think that you know ha- having meaning uh, when you go to the office each day really helps uh, all of us in terms of our ability to motivate and and, and work hard. Um, but we, we can't all be developing the the, the next cancer treatment breakthrough or, you know, bionic heart valves and, you know, things like that. We can't all be feeding, feeding the poor. So um, where, where do you derive meaning from, you know, a corporate role that doesn't touch on those sort of overtly humanitarian activities? Yes. Um, yes. And for me, it's really been, I've really found that meaning in helping others to grow their careers. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's, hugely rewarding. I mean, what, what we do as an organisation obviously helps corporations with you know, cultural change and productivity and, all, and, and branding and all of those things. But the true meaning for me comes from watching a team uh, truly unlock their own passions uh, and grow their own careers and be able to afford to provide for their, their families um, in, in a way that, you know, my parents couldn't do and that, that I've been able to do for my family. So just watching people grow and and, and build better lives for themselves is, is truly, truly rewarding. And that's been a, you know, a real motivator for me over the last you know, 10 years in my career. Well, just, you know, I guess we're patting each other's back in some way here, but one of the things I've always admired you, uh, Paul, is, is, is that road and that is one of how do you create co- commercial value um, but also have the humanitarian in you. And there's mm-hmm. not too many people um, that I find that have the balance as, as you do. I think the 80s uh, Wall Street capitalism really smashed the crap out of it, you know, mm-hmm. out of the humanitarian of it all and just, you know, how you could win through through just manipulating finance essentially. Um and and but if you really do want to keep a team together, I'm watching turnover now and companies just go crazy. Yeah, you know, it's it's um, you know at least that's in the states. I'm just you know people have got a new job every other month. I'm yeah. like, what's going on here? You know because they can't fit into the culture. They want what they want. I mean it's really something. So maybe we'll we'll have a round two of this of discussing values and and yeah, and, that would be uh, fun. You know how how this evolves. Through through our careers, you know? so yeah. thanks very much for joining me, Paul, and you, uh, to be continued. Indeed, thank you, Mark. Bye for now.